my name is Katie Perrin, and I'm a member of the South End Women's Shepherding Team. Um, I have been, I've been attending Hope for a while. Um, I was, I started going about a month before they moved out of the YWCA. Um, and actually, I met my husband um, at Hope, and now I currently live with him and my two kiddos, um, Nolan, who's nine, and Edie, who is six. Um, and I've, we've both been involved in Hope um, in various ways throughout the years, but, um, but this is my first time in a role like this, so I'm kind of excited and a little nervous. Um, my son calls it nervous-sighted. And, um, and I've never been on a podcast before, so this is kind of a moment. Um, so let's see. So normally we start with the Lectio reading, but since we're jumping back into the Beatitudes this week, we thought it might be helpful to give a quick recap from last semester before we get started. So um, you don't need to feel your feet or slow your breathing quite yet. <laughs> um, this, uh, this week we return to Beatitudes, which are essentially the opening lines of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Um, we're at the beginning of Jesus's ministry on earth, and he's casting a vision for a way of being in the world that will result in true flourishing. And he's essentially addressing this question, how do we thrive in the world while we wait for heaven to come in fullness? How do we live as kingdom citizens in the world, but not of it? And so the Beatitudes and really the whole sermon introduce us to the values of the kingdom by teaching us about the heart of Jesus. What does he care about? How does he see me? What does he envision for relationships? And this matters because Jesus is more than just a wise teacher or a prophet. He himself is the long-awaited Messiah and the king of the heavenly kingdom. And he doesn't just tell us what to do, but he embodies for us the future reality of heaven by living out kingdom values like humility and forgiveness and generous care for the people around him. So we started our study of the Beatitudes by asking, what does blessed really mean? Um, in our culture, blessed has come to mean a lot of things. Maybe that you're lucky or successful or things are going really well for you or maybe even that you have some sort of divine favor, like an in with Jesus. But when Jesus uses this word, he intends something different, something deeper. So Jen introduced us to Jonathan Pennington's translation of this word to mean flourishing, like a thriving and growing being at peace or feeling content regardless of our circumstance, which all sounds great, but I mean, we kind of want good circumstances too, right? I mean, I'd rather hear that Jesus is just going to take away the hard stuff and pave the way for the good life. And one day he will. Jesus's return and the new kingdom is a coming reality, but we're also invited to actively take part in kingdom living right now like appetizers at the cocktail reception before the feast, he gives us a taste of what is to come. He's presently redeeming and making things new right now, today, in you and in me. So this invitation into flourishing is really an invitation to set our sights above what is seen, above what we can perceive around us, 
It's an invitation to share in God's mission and vision as we navigate the realities of this world. The Beatitudes kind of walk us through a journey of living as kingdom citizens. Did you guys get these bookmarks? Did they grow from last semester? It was smaller before, right? Um, so so it, uh, on the back, it has a kind of a rewording or a translation, this translation of the Beatitudes. Um, and so you kind of see how we're walked through a, a journey here. Um, kingdom citizen living um, starts with being honest with ourselves. We talked about being poor in spirit means acknowledging when we're at the end of our rope and feeling our deep need for Jesus. This is where it starts. And as we feel that deep need, it causes us to mourn and grieve the ways that our sin affects others and the ways that the kingdoms that we have built have failed us. And as we mourn and repent, our hearts are humbled. In meekness, we yield ourselves to the Father's will rather than continuing to try and force our own way. And as we walk in God's ways, our hearts will hunger and thirst for righteousness or right relationship with God and others. And rather than desiring the things of this world, we desire to see his kingdom come and to live in a world where heaven and earth are united. And then out of this posture, we engage with the world differently. We show mercy because we've experienced God's mercy in our own brokenness. And Jesus tells us that along this journey, we will experience flourishing because he assures us that we are secure and our citizenship is in heaven, because he comforts us, because he directs our strength and our purpose to his perfect will, because he satisfies us, and because he shows us mercy when we struggle. So with this framework in mind, now we're going to slow down for a bit as we listen to Jesus's heartbeat for our relationships. And to do that, we're going to spend some time in silence, um, followed by a slow reading um, of our passage today. So um, I know it feels kind of weird to sit in silence. Um, I imagine that a lot of you have a million things going on in your head, um, a checklist going, and being still kind of feels like we're not getting anything done, right? But um, I want to assure you that God tells us in Scripture that when we are still, things are happening. Um, it's in our stillness that he renews our strength, and it's in our stillness that we hear him, and it's in our stillness that he gives us rest and that we see great things. Um, so let's kind of become aware of the thoughts that are stirring in your mind and just kind of set those aside and pick those up later. And relax your breathing. And release any tension that you're feeling. And we'll sit together in the presence of God.
Our Lectio reading for this morning comes from Matthew um, 5 and 8, and then also chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, where Jesus invites us to consider how we relate to other people. And I'll read the passage three times through, and I'll pause after each reading. For this first reading, see if any word or phrase stands out to you, or maybe makes you curious, and jot it down. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do not judge, so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother or sister's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the splinter out of your eye, but look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye. Then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother or sister's eye. As we return to the passage, let's engage your imagination. Imagine yourself in the seat of a judge appraising the men and women in your community. How does it feel sitting up there? What does your face look like? What kind of judge are you? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do not judge so that you won't be judged for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother or sister's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother or sister's eye. As we take in Jesus's words for the final time, notice the different versions of the word see in this passage. What might Jesus be inviting you to notice today as you ponder this passage? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look 
at the splinter in your brother or sister's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother or sister's eye. Lord God, thank you for your word and for your, the time to study it together this morning. As we reflect on the passage today, um, God, show us your heart for relationships and stir in us a, a greater desire to desire you more than anything that this world has to offer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we'll go ahead and start with our beatitude for this week. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Or Pennington's translation, flourishing are the pure in heart, because they will see God. Well, regardless of the translation, this one feels a little intimidating, doesn't it? Um, I know for me, I could resonate with most of the previous Beatitudes. I've definitely been at the end of my rope. I've mourned. Um, humility was a little tricky, but um, I'm familiar with thirsting for more and showing mercy. But pure in heart, what does that even mean? And is this even possible? Well, um, as Chuck DeGroat describes it in his book, Leaving Egypt, purity of heart envisions a life that is single-minded in its focus, a life of integrity, consistency, and authenticity. A person with a pure heart rings true whenever you tap her. Having experienced the refinement of the wilderness, she knows herself and loves herself. And as a result, she can love others with a purity of heart. So much of scripture, Old and New Testament, attests to the fact that the heart is the control center of our being. Our eyes go where our heart has already gone. Our mouths speak where our heart has already spoken. Our thoughts, our desires, our emotions, our motivations all start at the heart level. And whatever our heart is set on will soon become the driving force behind where we spend our time, our money, what we look at online, what decisions we make for our family, and how we feel about ourselves. We talked about the verse in Luke 12, 34, that reminded us that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus wants to be our treasure. A pure heart looks for satisfaction in Jesus alone, and then lives out of that. A pure heart reflects 
that we have been liberated from the bondage of condemnation or competition or comparison. A pure heart believes that God sees you and he says, I know you and you are loved and accepted. You don't need to work harder or serve more or save more or be more or look better or have more or do more. You can rest and know that your father adores you and has a future for you. Believing that this is who we are in Christ changes how we live. And when we live out of this truth, meaning when our actions reflect that we believe that what God says is true about us, this is what it means to be pure in heart. But this can be tricky, especially for me, since I feel like I've gotten pretty good at making my outside look shiny, even when it's not a real reflection of the fear or guilt or shame that's happening on the inside, inside my heart. A little more about me, it's always felt kind of important to me to have the approval of others. Growing up, I followed the rules at home. I got straight A's. I was home by curfew, and I participated in just the right number of extracurriculars to stand out on my college applications. I sound like a really fun time, huh? <laughs> um, after high school, I was sure that college was going to be a breeze because um, I was a good student. That's just who I was. So it was a real shocker when I pulled up to campus. Um, I went to Wake Forest, and that place is a hotbed of overachievers. Um, there were National Merit Scholars, all-star athletes. Someone had like published a book. Um, there was a guy who had been had a reoccurring role on a national television show. Um, everywhere I looked, there was someone better than me, smarter than me, more accomplished than me at everything. All the things that had made me stand out before were just ordinary. That first semester, I really struggled as God revealed to me that my works and my efforts were futile and empty. I realized that the message that I had come to believe was that I am valuable because of what I contribute. And if I want to succeed, or have a place in this world, then I need to keep bringing value to the table. And this is what it looked like for me to try and produce my own righteousness. I was looking out to the world rather than up to my father to tell me what I wanted to hear, which was that I'm enough. So Jesus interrupted my life with the gospel. He flipped all of this around and told me that actually I bring nothing to the table except my weakness. In fact, I'm not even at the table because of anything I've done, but because of what he has done for me. In the same manner, purity of heart is not something that we can accomplish for ourselves. Instead, Jesus tells us that he'll do it for us. In Ezekiel 36, 25 through 30, or 26, God promises through his prophet, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. When we accept Christ's righteousness by faith, Jesus gives us a new heart, and his spirit begins a sanctifying work in us. 
Now, I know sanctification is kind of a churchy word, but it basically means the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life to make them more and more like Jesus. So this means that even though the presence of sin still exists in the world, the power of sin is broken for the believer. To be clear, I definitely continued and continue to struggle with trying to earn my place in my job, in my relationships, as a wife, as a mother. The temptation didn't go away, but it no longer leads me to despair. I have hope. Jesus invites us to bring our struggles to him and let him carry us through it. Because you see, Jesus desires wholeness and completeness for us. That how we live would reflect how we have been broken by sin and restored and transformed by Jesus. Not just that we would do the right thing, but that his character would flow to us and then through us into the world an outpouring of his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his forgiveness, and his love, because we've received all of those things from him first. Now, I can want for these things, but I fear like me, I also feel a tension between what I know is true about God and his love for me and my present physical reality, which is really hard sometimes. Accepting God's will often requires letting go of something that I'm clinging to. As Cindy put it last week, an opportunity to lose something that's worth losing. He wants to give me something new and better, the bigger, better offer that she talked about, but I have to let go of the lesser things, and that can be difficult. For instance, saying no to things is like torture for me. I don't like letting people down or making someone think that I can't handle it. Inviting you into my house when there are toys on the floor and smudges on the windows, and I'm sure that at least one of the toilets isn't flushed, makes me cringe. And even sitting here in front of you wondering if I'm boring you to death or maybe I should have worn something different feels exposing and vulnerable. But Jesus wants to free me from living out of these fears. He tells me, I can say no because I am limited, but his love for me is limitless. And I can invite you into my house because you don't need a beautiful and spotless place to feel cared for. And don't worry about what you wear or how you look because image is fleeting, but the spirit in us is radiant. And as we lean on Jesus, our hearts and our actions become more aligned and we experience his presence. Our beatitude described this as seeing him in the world. Last month, I spent the weekend with some friends, and while we were hanging out, the one of the friends is here, so I'm kind of looking at her. <laughs> while we were hanging out, um, she pulled out this magazine, and it had all these pictures of these beautifully designed rooms. And as I looked more closely at this one living room, in the back corner, there was a giant pink flamingo, like not a plastic flamingo, like a stuffed life-size flamingo. Are flamingos like a thing? Do people decorate with flamingos? I don't know. I'm not up on home decor, but uh, I had never seen a flamingo in a house before. Um, And so it became kind of this talking point um, through the weekend. So the next day we went to an antique market and they have those booths, like rows and rows of booths. And 
y'all, I saw like five pink flamingos at this market. And, and not, not necessarily stuffed pink flamingos, but they were like on fabric, on a mug. There was like a sheet metal that was hammered, like a yard sign, um, all looking like flamingos. And I'm pretty sure that if we had gone to this market the day before, the flamingos probably would have been there. But I don't know that I would have noticed them. You kind of see where I'm going now? But now that we had flamingos on the mind, I was seeing them everywhere. And I think that's kind of what he's getting at here, that when our hearts are set on God, we see him more and more, reflections of his glory in the world. And not just in those miracle moments, but also in the everyday stuff. You're on a walk and you have sudden clarity about something that was um, bothering you, or you get a text from a friend at just the right time, or maybe you feel him calling you to lay down a burden or pick up a hobby that's gonna be life-giving. Or maybe you hear a verse in a song that feels like it was written just for you. The more time that we spend with our good father, the more he influences our perspective and the way that we look at and engage in the world. We see ourselves and the people around us in the way that he sees those things. Which brings us to our passage in Matthew 7, where Jesus shows us how kingdom living shapes our relationships. So to refresh, Matthew 7 starts, do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother or sister's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? At first read, it sounds pretty straight, sim uh, straightforward and simple, right? You do you, I'll do me, and we'll keep our opinions to ourselves. But uh, Pennington observes that the problems with this view are that it lacks nuance, and it does not cohere with the rest of Jesus' teaching. So let's start with what the passage is not saying. These verses do not intend to rule out discernment. Scripture is clear. There is a difference between what is true and pleasing to God and what is not. This is not a free pass for sinning or false teaching or universally accepting any type of behavior. But what Jesus is warning us about is our tendency to take our assessments a step further beyond just determining that this is good or this is not good. We then form our own opinion about what this means about another person or how we should treat them or what category we can put them in. Now, I'm guessing or hoping that most women here and listening on the podcast are not just like walking around saying mean things to people. But, and if you are, come talk to me, let's talk. Um, but as we've been learning through this sermon, Jesus wants us to look deeper. What we say to and about a person matters, but so does our inner posture towards that person. God tells us through the prophet Micah in Micah 6, 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And our passage reflects a similar message. Let us love our brothers and sisters in a way that is fair and just. Let us freely extend mercy and grace. Let us relate to others with humility and self-reflection. 
There are so many ways that judgments can creep into my heart. And maybe it's like this for you too. I don't know. Um, Leading me to assume or blame or label based on what someone posts on social media, how people spend their money, what we feed our families, what we choose to do with our free time, our choice of career, how well-behaved our kids are, where we live. It's easy to make a quick offhand comment or roll our eyes or maybe tell a friend that we should pray for so-and-so because she's really struggling with such-and-such. But we all know what's happening there, right? Judgments can be kind of sneaky like that. It hardly feels like a coincidence that this passage comes on the heels of Jesus talking about anxiety. Judging is something that we do to others, but it's also something that we do to ourselves. Our inner dialogue can be relentless and harsh, chipping away at our confidence, causing us doubt, and building our anxiety. Or maybe you've been on the receiving end of unfair judgment. I know I have. I have felt the sting of criticism that only compounded an ache that was already there. Or maybe you have felt blame or disapproval that cut at a part of you that already felt tender. It breaks Jesus's heart when we treat each other or ourselves in this way. He came to rescue and restore us from this. In the first lesson of sonship training, we had to, we got to listen to these sermons each week. And um, the one of the first ones, Jack Miller said something in his lecture that really stuck with me. He said, "We are very critical people." We glory in our ability to judge, assess, and evaluate. But you see, God is the only one who alone is entitled to evaluate. And he evaluates you and me. But he says, I took you from eternal wrath, and I brought you to myself, and you didn't do a thing. It was all my glory. God forbid that we should glory except for the cross of Christ, which brought about our salvation and keeps it alive and makes it full. See, judgment doesn't only affect the person being judged, but it also endangers the person who's doing the judging. When we judge others, we tend to elevate ourselves. And as our pride swells, we can lose sight of our own propensity to sin. Pride and self-righteousness take our eyes off of God's best path for us. The path that starts with repentance and leads to freedom. So practicing prayerful self-reflection not only preserves our relationships, but it is also nourishment for our own souls. Can you start to see how all of this ties back to the Beatitudes? When we acknowledge our own brokenness first, we have the eyes to see the mama or the friend or the roommate or the spouse who's at the end of their rope and we can offer compassion rather than critique or criticism. It helps us to extend grace to that coworker who's always late because maybe he or she is going through a hard time. We delight in approaching that person at community group who never talks because she is probably longing for something and we too know what it feels like to long and hunger and thirst for more. And rather than grumbling about that grumpy neighbor 
were moved to show mercy because we too have received great mercies from God. This is God's vision for kingdom community, not just that we would flourish as individuals, but that our flourishing would pour out into the relationships around us, that as a community, we would flourish together, celebrating each other's uniqueness, bearing each other's burdens, being vulnerable because we do not fear condemnation, and forgiving each other and sharing generously. What a beautiful foretaste of the feast that awaits us in heaven. But while we wait on this side of heaven, it is also true that brokenness and struggle still exist for Christ's followers. Jesus does not deny the speck in the brother or sister's eye. In fact, he talks about removing it because sometimes it is necessary. As members of God's covenant family, we are called to speak the truth in love to each other. And Jesus is showing us how to do this. Prayerful self-reflection and repentance influences our ability to love others well. And when we remove the plank from our own eye, we can see the other person more clearly. And perhaps, just as importantly, they can feel seen as we enter into hard conversations. So what does self-reflection look like? Well, for me, it looks like meditating on God's word, considering what areas of my life provide the greatest frustration or fear or distress or anger, humbly remembering that I am completely dependent on God's grace, and praying for what Paul refers to as a spirit of gentleness. As we reflect, it's important to be honest with ourselves, but it's also important to examine our own stories with kindness and gentleness and curiosity. Another insight from the Sonship Training, this is a quote from Josiah Bancroft, and he says, we reflect to our loved ones who we understand God to be in the way that we relate to others. I will have no approval, no grace, no delight to give to others if I don't believe that God approves of me, has grace for me, and delights in me. This is the measure that Jesus refers to in our passage the measure of love, forgiveness, and mercy that we show to others should reflect the same measure of love, forgiveness, and mercy that we have received from our Heavenly Father. Because let's be honest, we could all be just as easily tempted, if not by that sin, then by another. A few months ago, I went in to get an evaluation for LASIK eye surgery. I don't know if anyone's ever done that. My corneas are too thin, so apparently I'm not a candidate, but... During the evaluation, the doctor talked about the process of the surgery, and I, I won't go into it because it's like eyeballs and lasers, but, um, but I remember thinking how careful and attentive he was going to have to be to get this right without causing damage, and it certainly wasn't something to jump into quickly, and it needed to be the right person to do it. In a similar way, constructive conversation about a person's sin is something to be handled very carefully with the goal of redemption and restoration. It's worth considering, how can I show sensitivity and curiosity, maybe asking questions before I make assumptions? 
Can I approach this conversation as a servant to my brother or sister and not a judge or condemning accuser? And if I've sinned against her, am I prepared to extend repentance? Or if the sin is against me, am I prepared to extend forgiveness? How do I speak the truth with the same love that God has shown me? I mentioned before that I have two kids, they're nine and six, and um, as you can imagine, there's a lot of tattletaling in our house. Um, and on one hand, there are definitely times when I need to know what's going on, but there are definitely things that I think they can work out on their own. And so there's a question that I asked them, and I got this from another mama, um, that we tell them to ask themselves before they come to us, and that is, Am I telling mom to get Nolan or Edie into trouble or to get them out of trouble? Essentially, what is your heart motive for bringing this to my attention? Is it because you care so much about your sibling and you just so desperately want to get them out of trouble and help them? Or is it because you are trying to prove a point or get them a consequence or make yourself feel better? And I wish I could report that this has been successful at my house. Um, it has not. But um, every time I remind them of this, it reinforces to them and to me how important it is to examine our own hearts first. Okay, I'm going to do a time check because, oh man, three minutes, that's like right in the middle. Do we talk about the pigs and the, and the pearls? Because I know that we didn't, we didn't go through it before. You want to? All right, let's do it. Let's talk about some. So we left off of the um, of Electio reading, verse 6. I don't know if you, if you noticed that. Any Bible scholars out here notice that we left that verse off? Um, so chapter 7, verse 6 says, Don't give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Can you see why maybe we skipped over this one? Um, so uh, this is hardly a neat little bow to tie this passage up with, but, but it's in there, so we're going to unpack it. Um, Pennington describes this verse as the most difficult verse to understand in the entire sermon. Um, but he also says, this is the beautiful nature of poetic and proverbial sayings, that they invite many applications. Uh, so there's some freedom here. Um, if a verse like this feels confusing to you, that's okay. You're probably in good company. Um, so we'll look to Pennington and see what he says. He suggests that this verse provides a balance to the prior verses. He calls it a moral symmetry, saying, after emphasizing the hesitancy and extra care in discerning the faults of others, verse 6 supplies the counterweight, lest we become foolish and undiscerning. While disciples must always be careful in evaluating others, they should not become too lax or lose all critical faculties when it comes to sacred concerns. Jesus seems to be encouraging discretion when we engage in discussions about God's word and his truth. Different people value different things. And if someone doesn't believe the gospel or follow God's word, it doesn't carry the same weight or significance to them. It might be harder for them to digest, and they may even reject it and you with it. But I want to offer some encouragement that God can be trusted with the people we love and their unfinished stories. 
The sermon does continue, and Jesus will share with us how he is merciful and patient and ready to answer anyone who seeks him. Because this is the nature of God's kingdom, that all who come to him would flourish. I'm going to continue or conclude with um, some lyrics from a Sandra McCracken song called uh, We Will Feast in the House of Zion. I'm not, I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to read it to you. But, um, but I love this song because it reminds us of what is to come. When we will feast on the fullness of Christ, forever praising him with restored and flourishing hearts. And this is just an excerpt from the lyrics. And it says, we will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, let's go ahead and pray to close this up. Jesus, lift our eyes uh, above what we can see in our circumstances to gaze on your beautiful face. Help us, Lord, to believe that um, even as you govern the heavenly kingdom, that you are still near to us, that you are loving us and comforting us and freeing us from all the things that might entrap us in this world. We praise you, Lord, as the one who never changes and the one who will always be good and perfect forever and ever. Amen.